0: and you know i just say to my employees imagine if we can treat our guest anything close to that people always talk about marketing and how important marketing is and believe me i i am a huge sales hound but if we treat every guest that way i promise you they're going to tell 27 other people about that experience and that next piece of business will come from
1: welcome back to another episode of the entrepreneur adventure podcast where we give you the tools to climb higher and faster than ever before please welcome our guest today mr paul kramer of the classic center here in our very own athens georgia have you been looking for the secret recipe to consistent and effective execution well guess what you don't have to look any further because today. Paul will be sharing his wisdom required through many years in the hospitality industry. So with that, I'll turn it over to our hosts, Josh Melton and Chad Brown.
2: I'm so excited to welcome our guest today. He is a mentor of mine. He is one of the most successful executioners I have ever met, visionary, Everything I dream about and want to be. Welcome, Paul Kramer. Yeah, right. Hey, it's great to be here, and thanks so much for even thinking to have me. Uh, man, I'm excited. I'm excited for you to share with our audience today a lot of your story and journey and, and all of the things you're going to teach us today. I know every time I talk with you and every time we get a chance to, to get together, I learn so much, and today's not going to be any different. It's It's gonna be fun, exciting, and uh, a lot of stuff about your journey and uh, starting out. uh, I don't even know, so I'm excited to get to learn more there.
1: It's good too, Chad. Just to make sure that our audience knows that when you said Paul's a a successful executioner, that's to our knowledge, (laughs) you gotta gotta define that a little. He hadn't put anybody in the electric chair. No, no. But he does make (laughs) things happen at a successful rate. Uh,
2: I like it. I like it. Well. Well, man, I just really appreciate you being here with us and sharing uh, with our audience and would love to, let's just start out and talk about your story and how you ended up in Athens and how in the world you, you ended up in the in this type of industry and, and, and business.
0: It, it is indeed a crazy journey. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I started out really wanting to become a truck driver. And not, not that there's anything wrong with that. This is a great start, by the way. But I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I had two uncles, and they made great money, and they were hauling steel. Um, and I was young, and I saw their livelihood and, and how they were able to take care of their family. And I said, you know, that's what I, I really want to do. And uh, my mom said, if that's what you want to do, I think you ought to go drive with them for a little while. Wisdom. Smart woman. So I went out there and they leave at one o'clock in the morning. Oh my um, goodness. So ten minutes down the road I'd be sound asleep and after two <laughs> outings my uncle said, Son, I don't believe this is for you. Um, <laughs> now, so how old were you at this point? I was sixteen. Okay, uh, all right. So you got were- out there, yeah. I learned how to drive the tractor trailer. I learned how to, you know, make it through all the gears. But there was no way that I was cut out for that uh, at all.
2: Now, now, did you have to have snakeskin boots and country music, or was that optional? No,
0: that was optional. (laughs) They did not. But they did talk on the CB back then and do all that kind of stuff. But, um, But they did make good money. And, you know, my dad, I was fortunate. He was someone who just said, listen, you don't have to go crazy about this. All you need to do is find something that you're passionate about. And I really don't care what it is. Well about then I was working at a, a local restaurant and uh, I started as a dishwasher and uh, got the job there from my brother and I, I literally moved up through uh, a place called the Lobster Pound Restaurant and I did everything that there was to do in that restaurant. I cleaned it in the morning, I washed dishes for lunch, I hitchhiked home. Changed my clothes, took a shower, came back, bus tables at night, and on Sunday I got to ten bar and get to meet the older folks. Now that was a couple of years down the road, obviously, but um, but I learned a tremendous amount about management, about people, about how to relate to the customers, and about how incredibly important the staff uh, in a, a small restaurant like that really was. Um, and I loved it. I laughed so hard every day that I went to work. Oh, that's great. I just absolutely loved it. Now, we were in upstate New York, and Saratoga was just down the road. So what we had were people that wanted to stop and celebrate. Uh, they were ordering steak and seafood. And as a busboy, there was only one busboy uh, for the whole restaurant. And so I was making, at 16, I was making tips It was probably $100 to $125 a night uh, because I got 10% of whatever the girls made. And uh, it didn't take me long to figure out if I did a little servant-style leadership, if I set them up with everything that they needed, I made a lot more money. And it was
1: instant. Yes. Um, Did you connect the dots on this yourself, Paul, like the things that you're learning in this environment? Or was there someone there pointing some of it out to you? I mean, look, I had great
0: mentors, but that really comes a little down down the road. You just the saw story. the angles. At but the- yeah, this was just, um, you know, I was raised to work hard. And when I got in, the way you got to be a bus boy is the girls got to pick who they wanted from the dish pit crew. And so um, when they would ask me for something, I didn't walk to the cooler to get it. I ran. I mean, my dad—you know—that was instilled pretty early on. So I was just fortunate that they picked me, and, and we went down the road that way. But let me move on because we'll say <laughs> all on the story.
2: Um, now, hold on a second before we move on. You're making great money, I way was. more than anybody else your age at that Which in that area, I assume. Became a huge uh, topic of
0: conversation in my home. Because what I did was, as I was making great money, I took all of the dish crew out. And in the beginning, when we were still 16, we would go to the Waffle House or whatever, and I'd buy breakfast at the end. And those guys would do anything for me because every night so you were, I was as an
2: employee, out. you were investing back in to your co-workers. He was a
1: busboy who had an entourage.
2: <laughs> I, 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 I mean,
0: I didn't know what I was doing, but it was working. My yeah. dad, on the other hand, did not think so, so well of that. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, if ever you want to go to school, you better start saving that money. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that was a lesson in and of itself as well. But I worked at the Lobster Pound all the way through my first two years of school. I did decide to go to school for hotel management. And that doesn't sound like much because nowadays everybody goes to a four year school. But back then I was the only one in my entire family that actually went to college. Um, Then after two years there, I transferred out to RIT at uh, Rochester for hotel management. And that's really where the business acumen piece of it kind of came in. They were still teaching you hotel management, but it was no longer the hands-on kind of training. Now we went into finance and marketing and corporate finance and so forth. Um, And again, I was the only one that was paying for my education. So while I was there, I had to work at uh, somewhere and I started out waiting tables. And then landed at the Rochester Riverside Convention Center. And I walked in there as a cook because I had experience. They soon found out that I was studying for hospitality management. I became the manager of concessions, bar manager, and eventually the banquet management uh, for the company. Um, so, And it was a huge company. They were worldwide. It was yeah. called Ogden back then. Okay. Um, And I worked there for quite a while, and then I got a phone call one day from uh, a buddy of mine back in my hometown of Albany, New York. And now I had graduated, and uh, he asked me if I'd be willing to transfer back to my hometown, and I became the director of catering there uh, at a, a hotel that also had a conference center. But the cool thing about it, they did $6 million a year just in catering at this hotel. So it was like a little factory. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I learned a a tremendous amount there. And that's really where I started picking up mentors. Uh, Bob Fowler certainly was a great mentor and Gary O'Connor. Bob taught me how to sort of BS my way through and make it uh, no matter what you (laughs) did. And Gary was the one who really instilled systems more
2: than than anything yeah. else so so you're reaching levels of success here you're getting job opportunities you're growing you're getting promoted through the different uh opportunities that you have was this because do you contribute that to something you learned in school was it you were so well-rounded in your education and hospitality management no, was I, it work ethic to say what it,
0: but, uh, a lot of it was being at the right place at the right time okay uh, yeah to, to be honest with you uh how I made the leap from school into management. I wasn't quite done with school at the time. And the banquet manager quit and went out crying. I literally watched her walk out, tears in her eyes. And my boss turned to me and said, do you want to be the banquet manager?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and I paused and I said, I, I don't know, do I? Um, but in that is really a great story. I, I did take that job, but I didn't know what it was to be a banquet yeah, manager, I had not. no idea. And uh, the very first thing I did was sat down with the wait staff, and I just asked them, "Why is it that you guys are never ready on time? Why is it that things aren't working out? And why did that banquet manager just walk out of here crying?" And that led to a huge secret uh, that I've used through my whole career, and probably the most important thing I'm going to say. Um, the the wait staff taught me that it's all about people plan and equipment they explained to me that every time they would go in to do a banquet none of the materials they needed were in the room and clean and ready to go a b there was no plan so yeah all the staff would arrive but there was literally nobody knew what anybody else was doing and then C, they never seemed to have the right number of people to get the job done. They were either having too many or not enough. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so from from there, uh, I really began to think about people, plan, and equipment in everything that I did.
2: Yeah, now, it translates to everything, life, business, no matter what industry you're in. That's really cool.
0: I really think it is, back to your point, the secret to execution in almost everything that we did. Now, fast forward, coming, to, coming here um, to open this building, I, I, you know, it was the first time I was gonna be an executive director. We were opening the convention center. There was $700,000 in the bank. There were no employees. There was no business on the books. And I knew that I still needed to buy all the tables, chairs, equipment, staging that would make that place work. And so fear, I would say, is another great motivator uh, in my career. (laughs) Um, But but, you know, it, it didn't take long before you started to revert back to what you learned, right? I knew I was gonna need people. We had to get the building up and running and I needed business. So I didn't have time to learn this market. Uh, most conventions book two years out. Sure. And I needed business right now. Damn. They hired Damn. me in January. The building was opening in September. So I did the and only thing. And there was no
2: people plan or equipment in place. There's just Nothing. You. It and was just thousand me. dollars Just
0: me. And the building was being built. Oh, okay. So, so the there wasn't even, here even here an yet. office, right? Wow. So, um, and you know nobody
2: in Athens, Georgia, and right? And I'm
0: a Yankee, right, <laughs> that just moved to Georgia. So How did this work? <laughs> Well, Maureen Baker. I did the only thing a Yankee knew to do, which was go steal somebody that was already working, that knew the market, that knew where those people were going to be. I had to ask her five times to come work for me. But eventually, she did. She did yes. And uh, took a huge chance. And, and then I kind of went back to people and thinking about all the different departments that I needed. And the most important thing I did was spend time and choose the right people The first time through and then treat them well
2: and the rest sort of takes care of itself Um, all right I got a question for you here because this is something all entrepreneurs face Um, anybody that's in management or growing you want to hire the right people the first time absolutely but also Hey, you make you mistakes, have, right? You, you have a little or no business, and the right people cost money. How do you over? How did you overcome that fear of, man? If I get the right people from the start and all the people I need, I'm burn through all my money before I can build the back end of bringing in the customers. You the are, business. you
0: are exactly right. And and even though we were an authority, it was just like running my own business. Absolutely. In yeah. fact, I'm going to tell you a great little story. I. I was going along, and we had hired an operations person locally. I hired Maureen Baker locally. My engineer came locally. Um, But now it was time to hire somebody that really understood buying talent and running the theater. And so that individual came in from Colorado, and I had to offer them a pretty substantial salary to to move here and make this work. Um, And I was petrified. Because we had some business on the books. We had a lot of prospects. But, I mean, it, it occurred to me that this could not work. And um, it was that moment that probably every entrepreneur has. And at that moment, Maureen Baker walked into my office. And she said, she closed the door, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm just looking at the money that we have. I'm looking at the bookings that are here. And I'm starting to add up people that I've convinced to come help us and and I I have this thought and she slapped me and she said you are the leader of this organization you need to pick yourself up I didn't leave another successful organization come work for you for no reason we have no choice but to move forward and make this thing work she's one of the best mentors leader I don't care what you want to call her she did work with me every step of the way to build our business. And uh, once she said that, she was right. I needed to quit rethinking things put my head down and, uh, and bring the sales in that would make it work.
2: There is no plan B, we gotta, we gotta figure it out.
0: Now what we did do, uh, it wasn't just hire the right people and off you go, sure. um, you also really needed systems. And mm-hmm. that I learned early in the food and beverage days, and we used to say, it's probably not good, but uh, we need to check, check again, and check again for the hell of it. Um, there needed to be a system for everything that happened and it needed to have the kind of checks and balances where you weren't that gotcha manager, right? People are going to make mistakes. It's management's job to build the system that allows everybody to do what they're gonna do successfully because there's enough checks and balances along the way that you're gonna set those folks up to succeed. And you saw that even when you came and did the business expo Uh, from sitting down and meeting with you to writing what we call an EPS, and then having you sign off on it, do the same thing with the banquet event order, the BEO. And then when you come in on the day of, we would have the event planner go through every bit of that timeline with you, just to make sure nothing had changed, that we're still ready, that we've anticipated your needs. And through all of that, uh, you build a really great reputation And if the focus is not to meet the need, but exceed the need of the customer, then you've got it going on because then those customers walk away and they tell 27 other people, hey, I had this event at the Classic Center and it was the greatest thing. These people anticipated my every need and that's where your next piece
2: of business is gonna come from. That's really cool. And so you accept the fact that people are going to make mistakes. Absolutely. But you build the
1: systems to to be able
2: to catch the mistakes and fix them before it ends up in the customer's lap. No doubt. That's such great advice. So
1: i got a question for you on this one, Paul. Yes. Because I think for lots of entrepreneurs, they're building a business, and many who start as solopreneurs. So they are doing this and doing that. They're doing everything in the business is them. So they have some things they're good at, some things they're terrible at. And you get to this spot where you don't know how to bring in help because you're like, I'm gonna bring in Chad to help me, but if I have to defi- like create the system for him to work in, I suck at this thing. I need to hire him for. How do you? How did you do that in this scenario? Because you're kind of you've you experience, but you're coming in blind and there's no existing system in place because it's brand new. What was your method for that tension between like designing a system and then bringing in someone and merging those two? Like, how did you do that?
0: So I think it's humility, right? Uh, to a large extent. You know that you need somebody else to help make you go forward. You might not know all the answers to that, but you know some of those core things. And uh, I'm a big believer in vision and writing it down so you know where you want to go. I'm a big believer in core values and what are the core values of your company. and. No, you don't have to know how to run a performing arts theater, but you need to know what your core values are and how you wanna treat people. And then um, the mission should drive so much of where you're going. And so we did spend a lot of time on all of those elements. And when I brought Carol in, who was gonna run the performing arts theater, I had done every job in a convention center uh, except for the performing arts theater piece. And it was very humbling to admit, I don't know what I'm doing with this. Yeah. You so know? you're bringing somebody in and I, saying, hey, come in, it's going to be awesome. I have no idea to help you do it. That's right. Do. But what I had to say is, I might not know everything that there is to know, but I know we've got a team that will support you. And I know what our core values are, and we're going to support you that way. We believe in teamwork. We believe in hospitality. And we believe in servant-style leadership, which means that if that stage needs to get mopped before Al Ligotti comes in and you're setting up the box office, then the executive director suddenly gets a mop and a bucket and goes takes care of that. And uh, I think that goes back to what I said earlier. If you treat people really well and you do it with them, I think you're going to find that they will be willing to share their information and grow your business with you.
2: That's great, great, great advice, and and you can tell too the the passion and the fun and enjoyment behind. Uh, oh my God! What we do, always laugh with people, and yet y'all are y- you all have one of the the greatest environments of positivity and fun and just uh, success anytime I plug in with anybody over there uh, with you or your team it's kind of have to right I mean
0: hospitality uh, we all work 60 70 yeah you're working at
2: night you're showing up early in the morning you're setting up tearing down it's and so if
0: you can't have fun if it isn't like a family if you don't enjoy each other that would be a horrible thing Uh, but (laughs) But I think all of us truly enjoy serving other people, and we, and we genuinely
2: enjoy helping each other.
0: And, and that and, makes a difference.
2: And, and I assume that's a big part of your hiring. You, you take that into account, and, and you're looking for the right fit for the rest of your team, so it continues to be fun and enjoyable for everybody.
0: Absolutely, and I think from a leadership perspective, right? I try to be involved with every person that I'm gonna hire uh, I don't do the initial interviews, but I'm mm-hmm. always sitting in on that. Lat, you know, the top three I'll usually get in, and I'm not necessarily to your point. I'm not necessarily looking for specifically how are they going to do their job, but what I'm going back to is where's my vision, what's the mission, and what are our core values, and are they going to fit into the overall mix? Um, and if they do, then I'm then I'm set. The other big part that I'm a believer in is as a leader you better understand the business model. I don't believe that management hopes to have good numbers at the end of the month. I believe your job as a manager of a division or as an entrepreneur is to make those numbers happen. And if you truly understand the percentages, where is your labor cost percentage, and you do your homework, you read over every event that you've got for the next two weeks, and you schedule, then you go back and calculate how much am I about to spend before you spend it, and you know where that percentage needs to come in as a as contrast of room rental in our business, then you can find out exactly where you're going to be before it ever happens, which is why I love my business. Every part of my business is calculable and i can figure it out way in advance and all of the folks that work at the classic center they know what line items on the P and L belong to them and so it's very empowering to them and they don't have to wait for me to tell them they've done a good job they know they've done a good job
1: there's this book that i read very popular in the small business community called traction but one of the key components of traction is like everybody has a number And they know what their number is. like you're saying. It's like if people can know, like, here are your numbers. If you understand your business model, you understand where you fit into the business model. Like, hit your number. Like, you don't. Not that you wouldn't praise people because I know that you do. But they they know they're winning based on they know their number and they know if they're hitting it or not. And
0: and you said the word winning, and that's how we feel uh, down there. And everybody. It's not just that I know or that the board of directors knows. Everybody knows when somebody's hitting their numbers, and. The converse is also true. Yeah, you know everybody
1: knows if you're not hitting your numbers, which is great because it's an external um, circumstance or pressure that will make people rise up to perform. If I know that, hey Chad knows if I, I can't hide it from Chad, he knows what my number is supposed to be, and he can see it. Like that's a good pressure for winners so, to have. Anyway, it's accountability, absolutely, right? yeah, and, accountability.
2: Uh, and there's just no question: am I am I good at my job? Am I doing a good job this week? You've got the numbers in black and white to. So you're either winning or losing. You're either performing or you're not.
0: And a lot of people freak out over budgets. But honestly, I just feel that it's a part of that plan. If you've got an accurate budget, you know where your percentages are, you share that information with everybody, then the business part of it goes a lot easier going forward.
1: I know our experience with doing this the Stronger Business Summit, as you're saying what your core values were, or excuse me, are at the Classic Center, I'm like, man, that's exactly what I felt. When we were in those rooms doing the plane you know, like the week of the event, we're doing a you know kind of the last round of planning and walking through some stuff. I was like, man, this is like a big team. These people seem to actually like working with each other, and I felt appreciated. Well, it wasn't yeah, like we were absolutely. like causing a problem. We're asking for special things, and it's like, hey, yeah, we can make that happen. It was like we were the honored guests being there, which is exactly what. That, you I said, appreciate you make people that, feel that
0: more way. than you'll ever know. It is the foundation. You know, when you talk about hospitality, how do you define hospitality? We all know what it is, but it's very difficult to define. So what I do when I'm interviewing is I just tell every employee, look, it's, it's that thing. The first time you went far, far away to college and you came home. And where I'm from, when you pulled up in the driveway, mom and dad weren't sitting in the living room waiting for you to ring the doorbell. They came running out to that broke down car I had, (laughs) flung the door open, and they hugged me like they had never seen me before. And then mom would start bringing me toward the kitchen. And about halfway there, I smell my favorite meal being baked in the oven. And it is an unbelievable feeling to know that somebody anticipated what I truly wanted and never asked for. You walk in that kitchen and you pop the fridge open, as every guy generally does, and you look inside and there's every one of your favorite drinks sort of lined up. That night we sat down, had dinner, and uh, all of the conversation was about college and about me and about my future and uh, from the whole family. That night when I'd go back to my room, walk in there, it was immaculately clean. And when I slipped between the sheets that night to go to bed, I could smell the fabric softener. I knew that bed had been freshly made up that day. And so it would go all weekend until it was time to leave, and she would then walk me back out to my car, hug me again, give me that fond farewell, put cookies in the back seat that would haunt me the rest of the way home. And you know, I just say to my employees, imagine if we can treat our guest anything close to that. People always talk about marketing and how important marketing is. And believe me, I I am a huge sales hound. But if we treat every guest that way, I promise you they're gonna tell 27 other people about that experience. And that next piece of business will come from that.
2: How so. about that for a vision? I got chills. That is amazing.
1: I got hungry for cookies. <laughs> I did too. I was like, you still got those uh, nice cookies in your backseat, Okay, seat, Paul? Now,
2: now you, this is going a direction that I wanted to cover and that I'm really curious about from you all at the Classic Center. You bring in an amazing number of conventions and shows and events. We're, we're talking in normal times outside of covid five to 600 a year right almost
0: 700 events a year and just
2: to put that in perspective two a day by the way price waterhouse
0: coopers does a study every year of every building whether it's the world congress center or it's the Oconee civic center sure and on average they do about 280 events a year so in athens we're doing 700
2: events a year that's incredible and and, in these events can book anywhere. They they don't have to be in Athens. They don't have to come here. There's maybe even more challenges because the travel to Athens. How have you been able, and every business owner struggles, how do I sell? How do I get more customers? How do I get more clients? You you all have figured out how to perfect that. And is it through this word of mouth experience model? It's
0: truly, I mean, that's the foundation, right? Uh, I think there's another little secret weapon there. We spent as a team, uh, an entire weekend, and we said we're not li- leaving here until we come up with a brand statement. What does it really mean? What does our brand really mean? What's our brand promise? And and that will allow us to know what we're going to market. And uh, we brought in a consultant to help us facilitate through it. And I can't even rehearse what the brand statement is. But I can tell you what he said. Uh, be impressed is really the outcome of that brand
2: statement. I recognize that as well. And, it's on everything. And he
0: yeah. said, Paul, none of your employees will remember this paragraph of the brand statement, but all of them can remember two words, be impressed. And if you work towards making sure that all of the employees are focused on that same thing, you're going to have an incredible marketing program. And... Uh, that's really what we focused on for the last
2: 25 years. Okay, here's where I'll steal the show for a minute and, and get selfish and start uh, asking you questions to help me in my business. So you're growing. You want to impress everybody. All about experience and creating that welcome home experience. To do that, you got to continue to deliver a high level of service as you grow. How are you able to grow to 700 events and continue to provide that? Are you over hiring? Are you hiring ahead of the curve? Are you just training to a level that's unheard of? How do you balance that customer growth versus level of service? So look, you can never
0: train, in my opinion, somebody to be at that level. Uh, it's kind of like Disney, right? Disney okay. yeah. doesn't tell everybody, hey, pick up garbage every 15 seconds. But instead, he sort of guides them to this, this place. And I, I think we've been lucky, fortunate, whatever. Um, I, I think we spent a lot of time bringing the right people in to begin with, and then we work side by side with them. Um, and we spent a lot of time on what's called culture. Um, along the way, I realized that workforce development wasn't just gonna happen, it needed to be made to happen. So. Most folks don't know, but we started the program at Athens Tech, the hospitality management program. And then to make sure that that was working, we started recruiting high school students and we created a summer camp in partnership with the Ritz-Carlton. And to be honest, I learned a tremendous amount from the Ritz-Carlton. They had 17 points of service and they've got it on a little credo card. And they have a thing they call a morning lineup And what they did was they would line up all the employees in the whole hotel uh, that morning and they'd have breakfast for them. And the general manager would walk out and say, this week we've got these three major groups coming in and I want to know how we're going to put our 17 points of service into action above and beyond what they've asked us for. And so the head of housekeeping will say, well, I think we could do this upon arrival and the the bellman would say, I think we could do this and it would help us remember the people's names on the way in. And, uh, you know, I I sat back and watched all that and I went back and I said, Philip, what are our 17 points of service? And uh, wouldn't it be really cool if we did a, a, you know, regular lineup and really talked about these on an ongoing basis, not so much that we management are dictating it, But wouldn't it be even better if the employees themselves are probably going to come up with better ideas than we ever thought about? And uh, once that starts and then those employees get that good feeling from the other employees, then that whole thing becomes contagious and
1: it just becomes a way of operating. That's awesome, too, Paul, from what you're saying. The whole style of this. They didn't seek to extract value from the employees before they provided value for the employees. Absolutely. They had a pancake breakfast. Absolutely. Like, hey, come in. Let us honor you. Let us show our appreciation to you. And then it was just reciprocated. It like, was, hey, well, like, how can we serve our people well? They just had an example of how to serve people well. And you used a, a term
0: earlier. It's how you were made to feel. And I'm telling you, every time I go to the Ritz-Carlton, every time I pull up, Am I paying way more than I probably should for a hotel room? Absolutely. But it's the way they make me feel that I would be willing to spend that money uh, because it's
2: unbelievable. The price doesn't matter.
0: And it's not the general manager and it's not the front desk. It's every human being that I meet there does that.
1: There's something about that feeling you're getting going there and which is why they can charge the higher price for it, that resembles you going home from college. It exactly, makes you feel honored and appreciated. Exactly like you're that. You're
0: special. It's exactly that. Um, they figured it out a long time ago. But I will say this. They have created systems, like I was saying earlier, so they can successfully execute that every time.
2: You can't just do it with a vision. You got to have the systems behind. They got to be there.
0: And if you've ever pulled up at a Ritz Carlton and somebody opens the door and they say, "Mr. Kramer, welcome to the Ritz Carlton," and you wonder, "How did you just do that?" (laughs) Right? The only way they can do that is there are systems built into the bell desk that they know exactly who's going to be coming. They know, you know, whatever. And, and then the other thing that would always surprise me, I think the first time we ever went there was a special occasion, maybe an anniversary. Well, to this day, when I go on that day, um, there's a bottle of champagne waiting in my room. Uh, it is just they don't miss a trick, I tell you. Once we stayed at uh, Amelia Island, and it was um, a super dealer. I promise you we wouldn't have stayed there. But it was at the uh, concierge level. My kids were really young, and my wife thought, wouldn't it be great if we stayed there because there's five meal servings a day, you know, uh, we wouldn't really have to go out. We could just spend our time on the beach. And so um, my son was tiny, maybe five years old, and uh, he walked into this concierge level, and there was a platter of cookies. I know you think that's all I do is think about cookies. But... <laughs> so he's, he's drawn to the cookies. So um, this platter of all different kinds of cookies, and um, he walked over, and he sort of pulls himself up to look at the cookies, and he loves chocolate chips. Well, for whatever reason, there was every kind of cookie there, but no chocolate chips, and the look on that little boy's face, you know, he was just crushed. And, uh, but he walked back to his mom, and um, the concierge noticed that. And she knew exactly. She walked over to him. She said, what kind of cookie were you looking for? And, uh, you know, just in passing. And um, we went down to the beach, came back later that afternoon, and there was a platter of chocolate chip cookies <laughs> With a little card that was in there, and it was made out to Sir Benjamin Michael Kramer.
2: Oh, man. And
0: it apologized for not having those chocolate chip cookies at that spot. Now, if you think that we didn't go back to that hotel again and again yeah. and again, and if you think that I hadn't told that story 27 times, you're crazy. That
2: is customer service. Okay. All right. So, light lot bulbs are going off for our listeners right now. They understand the vision. They know they need systems. The big question, I'm guessing everybody's thinking, okay, Paul, I need systems. Who builds the systems? Do I as a business owner? Do I hire a consultant? How how do the systems get built to create this level of performance and service? And who does that?
0: So I think that does come back, if I'm honest, to mentors, right? Some of that came from mentors. Uh, There was a guy in Rochester, New York. His name was Joe Floriano. He was president of our International Association of Venue Management. And I learned the entire convention center operation from Joe Floriano. Uh, And he was the one who taught me all of the checks and balances that need to be uh, put into place. I also learned from uh, Mike Nelson and Ogden Food Service. Ogden at the time was a multi-billion dollar company that ran food service everywhere in the world. And so um, even if it was simply uh, concessions, they would have an inventory sheet, they would have cup counts, The cash had to match everything. And so I felt like I had a doctoral degree after I learned Ogden's Systems of Operation. So um, a lot of those systems I came here with, Mm -hmm. with the background that I had had along the way, but that doesn't mean those systems were perfect, right? Uh, My staff has now taken the core of what those systems had and, and really built upon those in a way that I could never have imagined 25 years ago. Um, a great example of that might be ticketing, right? Ticketing is quite simple, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back in the day when I was opening the Classic Center, remember we had the Olympics coming in, and we had 16 different acts programmed in the performing arts theater. Um, so that meant, back then, hard tickets. So we would have to order tickets from this company called Walden, Williams, and Lick, and it would come with a uh, manifest that said exactly how many tickets were in the loge, how many were in the mezzanine, but it was all hard ticket. Well, fast forward today, all of that is done computerized. Sure. um, But because we learned through the old fashioned system of hard ticketing, We know what to look for in a computerized system to make sure that we're never going to lose accountability in that system, but that the new system can take us a lot further down the road. I mean, we never had CRM when I started, (laughs) uh, but today you just look at Salesforce and what it does for you. Oh, it's amazing. Um, Yeah. It is incredible. Uh, But but those systems uh, are improved upon by your employees and then we need to hold those employees up and celebrate that when they're able to bring the system to the
2: next level. When you talk about systems, a lot of people have flashes of spreadsheets and sitting at a desk checking stuff off. How do you balance systems and accountability with fun and service and loving jobs? Is it just so good of a culture those systems mean winning and there's such a desire to win? I think that's a part of it. Uh,
0: I think that the employees love hitting their numbers because everybody knows when they've hit their numbers.
2: Everybody wants to be successful.
0: But I I think the other thing that's built into the system is nobody's as smart as all of us are. So uh, the director of ops takes every event, For the next two weeks, goes through it with a fine-tooth comb, makes all of his or her notes in advance, anticipating problems. And then we have a meeting where the executive housekeeper is there, the setup crew is there, the engineer is there, the food and beverage people are there. And we literally go back through that event document over and over and over again. And no one person is going to have all the answers. But it's pretty easy for Kurt uh, to say, well, wait a minute, you've got more power than I have in that room. We, we <laughs> probably need to sit back and talk about that. Uh, we had a young uh, planner that came in one time, and she was so excited that she, she had sold this trade show and all the tables and all of the booths that went with it, only to realize okay, well, we only have 150 tables, and if I'm right in adding up your EPS, you have 495 (laughs) tables throughout the building. Where are we gonna get the rest of these tables from? And uh, we had to actually ship them in from Atlanta, and instead of making money, we actually lost money on that event because of the transportation fees and so forth we had to buy. But it's all a part of the learning. Right, and yeah. uh, and it's the only way you're going to get there you're going to make a few mistakes um, but but we just need to support each other through that and, and it works out fine in the end
1: so going back to your story Paul so you, you get us to you're at the Classic Center it's it's brand new there's no events you're hiring people and just starting to roll in the direction of like alright we're going to make this happen you kind of left this in the story of the time of where you're like oh my gosh and we're going to make it and one of your co-workers is like, we're going to make it, you're the Fuck leader. Up. Make yeah. it happen, right? Well, today, the Classic Center in Athens is just phenomenal property. It's recently expanded. We have a very unique political culture in Athens, and you somehow found a way to get everybody on board enough to make these drastic changes. To I mean, even the, the, the way downtown Athens looks with the Classic Center now. Like, take us from that conversation. Sure. So where we're at now, like walk us through that a little bit and give us a little bit of the, of the So like just how you got like
0: there. just like an entrepreneur, right? Um we worked, we booked it and cooked it back then. Uh everybody that was employed uh was a salesperson. Everybody worked the events. Everybody cleaned up the events. I mean it, it took all of us. But um but I think to your point, the other real important piece is something called key performance indicators. And when you're talking about the difference of political folks that might come and go or whatnot, um, I think we were pretty laser focused on the mission, key performance indicators. And through that, we were able to have a measurement of success. And as those events began to come in, the greatest part of a convention center is we pump economic impact into our community. To the
2: tune of... $40 40 almost, or $50 million dollars 50 a year. million right? a year. Yeah, and it's yeah. about to go up with the arena. I mean,
0: it's, so, it's phenomenal. And, and you saw that happen with the arena, right? The arena Absolutely. cost a lot of money yeah. uh, to build. and it had so, a lot of
2: opposition.
0: Oh, it did. And And there were a lot of people that said, you know, I don't know if we need this. But when you could share with them the number of events that are projected to come in, the amount of spend per person that is going to happen that all the small businesses of Clark County would benefit from, it's hard to deny it. And then I was also able to show the initial building we invested $30 million in, and now the return on that investment, just in the way of you know, sales tax, hotel motel tax, ad valorem tax from the new hotels that have moved into the area, and the visitor spend, it amounts to like six hundred million dollars over the same period of time. It's so been a um, it's been a investment decent there. investment, yeah. To yeah. <laughs> to say, a decent investment. So it's uh, you know, it's just a matter of breaking some of those things down, sharing it back, and understanding, regardless of your politics, right, there's certain things that everybody wants to see their community do, and that's grow and prosper, not just for one segment or another, but for everybody. And I think that's what the Classic Center has been able to really share. Um, you know, as we grow, as that economic impact comes in, we're creating jobs. And the really neat thing about our jobs is we meet people where they are, right? In hospitality, you don't have to have a doctoral degree to begin, um, you can start out. And then through our cultural foundation, we've actually created funds that can take our employees and encourage them to go back and get their GED if they don't have that. Um, And we've got funds that can help you with that. If they decide they want to go to Athens Tech for two years, we've got a fund that will do that. If you're a singer and you want to go to New York and go to the Juilliard School of Music, we've got funds that will help do that. Uh, because the foundation raises money, that's their full-time job, so that we can pour stuff back into the people of Athens and the people that work at the center to further their education. Um, So when you expose that to the commission, when you expose the good works that we're doing, the job creation that's happening, and how we're helping entrepreneurs that are trying to invest in their community it becomes pretty easy sell uh, at the end of the day.
2: And I think that's a huge value and tip for all our listeners. You are truly the best I have ever seen <laughs> at making something a win for everybody. And you find, you see the angles and you take the time not only to see it, but explain it and show how it is a win for everybody involved. And I think if pe- more people would apply that in their business for their, for their team, for their customers, for their community, for their business, everything with their eyes, and that's, that's such an important lesson and tip. It's, it's probably one of the, the most impactful things I've taken away from our relationship is seeing how everybody wins in this situation and helping them understand that. That's, well, it's amazing. You're the greatest. I
0: mean, I do believe in God, and I believe that that's got a lot to do with it. Um, I think that every time you try to do something reasonably good for your community, it comes back tenfold. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm reminded when COVID hit uh, on the 13th, Friday the 13th, we lost $1.6 million in a day of solid contractual bookings that were there. It was just gone. And so immediately we sort of huddled up and said, what do we do? And we knew that we needed to right size the team. So that had to happen and it was painful. but the very next thing we did was we drafted two letters. One went out to the mayor, one went to the governor. And we said, look, if we can't do business right now, we have 58,000 square feet of exhibit space. I have loading docks. I have dumpsters. I have I have the ability to really help. And if I can't do business, I want to help the community. And we've got a great team. And um, the very next day, David Bradley held... a a virtual meeting of small business people, and I was telling the story of what we wrote the letters to do, and uh, Grant Whitworth was on that call and knew about a company called BioPlanet. And uh, he gave me a phone call, and he said, uh, right after the meeting, and he said, is there any way you would come in and show the building on a Sunday? I have a company that might use your building. And I said, would he hire people? And he said, absolutely. Well, having just let go a bunch of people, (laughs) that became the most important thing in my life. So I said, yeah, I'll come in on a Sunday. By Monday, we had a signed contract. By the end of that week, they had hired 30 of those people that I just had to lay off. And just last week, this week, I guess they opened their brand new building, cut the ribbon. And it was so rewarding to go to that and have those employees walk up and high five me and they're doing great. And now I know there's a company here in town. But that's a great example. Look, I didn't set out to do any of that. I just thought maybe we'd be a hospital in the in the exhibit hall, or maybe we could do uh, hand handout food through the food bank or something, um, you know. But it led to lots more uh, that we probably don't
1: have time to talk about. That's awesome though, because in that moment, through circumstances you have no control over, your business is just most people lose out of one
2: customer. They've day. had a bad day and they curl up in the fetal position, don't know what to do.
1: One point six million
2: dollars of business in one day.
1: Yeah, basically the world says, "Paul, your business can't run right now." It but you have people. You know, Are right, we have some people like I got to figure out what to do with my people. We can win, and we have equipment because your facilities I mean it's ultimately that's equipment that's in your business so you have some resources and you were a, enough of a visionary to say I don't know what the vision is yet but I got people and I got equipment what can we do and put it out there with vulnerability and here you are a year later seeing like those seeds that were planted reaping a harvest I have to imagine that when you went to that ribbon cutting bio planet and now they're at the classic center.
0: Oh, it was so great. Um,
1: It had to feel like the the college homecoming again. There had to be some of those feelings of like, you know, the the, governor was there.
0: Our state representative delegation was there. The CEO of the company was there and they mentioned the classic center no less than three times. Um, they made it clear, uh, that how they were made to feel while they were there and that our employee base really did help them. Um, You know, it it was just a a great feeling. So, um, And to the team, again, sometimes our role as leader is not to figure it all out, but to inspire the team. And uh, that led to another meeting of saying, how else can we help? Like this worked, um, what else could we do? And about that time, you might remember the hospitals for the first time ever, uh, they were running short on face masks. And so they wanted to put a face mask not only on their employees, but also on the patients coming in. And so you know went to Kurt, my engineer, and uh, said, listen, is there any way that we could actually make face masks? I know they're really struggling. And uh, there was a woman uh, that we had come across that ran a sewing program, taught kids, kind of like we do with Bread for Life, and uh, Lillian Jones, Steve Jones' wife. Um, and she, I, I knew her through Rotary and I called her and I said, listen, I know this is crazy, but is there <laughs> any way that you would come in and teach my staff how to make a face mask? And she said, well, Paul, yes, but I mean, you would need you know 15 sewing machines. Do you have 15 sewing machines? And I said, well, no, I don't, but, but give me a week and uh, we reached out to all the members that we have in the foundation.
2: Oh, that's brilliant. And we asked them, would you happen to
0: have a sewing machine from way back when sitting around? Well, sure enough, next thing you knew, we had the equipment. Uh, We had a trainer, uh, somebody that had a plan, and she walked in, took our employees over, and Chad, you're gonna remember, we raised money for an employee fund because there was no money, Mm -hmm. Um, and so, what we did was we were able to keep people employed, paying for them through that money that we had raised, and produced 2,000 masks for Piedmont. Uh, and so we had BioPlanet making the, the machines downstairs that would kill the virus, and upstairs we were making the mask in the ballroom. Um, and it was, it was a, again, a really great feeling, uh, when you couldn't do anything else. Um, And then about that time, Danny came in and said, hey, I got another idea. I know our mission says we're here to serve this community as the civic, cultural, and social center while maximizing the economic impact. What if we could still produce events but do it in a totally different way? And I said, what are you talking about? Um, And that led to a partnership with Terrapin. They found out about it. And we took local entertainers and we videotaped them in their homes. They videotaped themselves. And we put it up on YouTube, promoted the heck out of it, and found 4,000 viewers tuned in uh, to be entertained at a time when they couldn't have it any other way. And it always had the classic center brand down there at the bottom. So um, there's always a way to do something. And, And I'm telling you, it comes
1: back tenfold. We talk about culture, and talk about systems that are in culture and like we've all been to Chick-fil-A oh and they say my pleasure and for the most part they say my pleasure and it seems like they've hired the right people. It's like it seems like that person actually meant it. But there's probably been a time for us where someone's like, My pleasure. And it will you know, it was like big difference. They're just going yeah. through the motions of it, right? So there's a big difference as well between being in a difficult spot in business and saying, What can I do? And also saying, What can I do? passion. Right. Yeah. The, like yeah, the, not what can I do as if like I'm stuck and there's nothing that I can do. And it's just like a relenting of frustration. What can I do? It's like, no, there's always something you can do. And so not only you, but members of your staff are asking the question, all right, what can we do? We can't do what we'd normally do, but what can we do to still satisfy and fulfill our mission statement and make a difference in our community? And so you're making masks to protect, you're making, you know, machines to kill the virus. And then you're doing what you exists to do. You're bringing entertainment and value to people in that way as well. And to, in ways you've probably never, ever thought of doing. But in the moment when the pressure's on, you said, what can I do to still make a difference? What can I do to still win for us by helping others win? And and I think it all comes back. You and I talked about this before the podcast. You mentioned it
2: several times. Make it happen. Yeah. And that's something from a management standpoint th- that you teach. My management team needs to know how to make it happen how do we deliver
0: it's not just when they walk in the door when you hire them i mean we talk about that every week every every quarter every month and it becomes like the great game of business i don't know if you ever read that book but um it it truly is um is a big part of how that whole organization operates and um and I think the, the fun for me now is it's no longer me and Philip and Maureen. It's, it's the entire organization. And, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't also speak a little bit about the board. Um, you know, whether it's our cultural foundation or it's our board of the Classic Center Authority, it's absolutely vital to have that connection to the community. Uh, these people become our cheerleaders, our mentors. Um, they're the ones that are challenging us to think outside of the box. They're not afraid to say, Paul, that's a terrible idea, you know. Um, and and if you're going to brainstorm, you're going to come up with a bunch of ideas. Not every one of them is going to be uh, a home run, you know. Um, but I I think that I am just very lucky that this organization from its inception, was started with a great board who um, really knew the community and knew where to go to open doors. And I think every entrepreneur, whether they have a board like mine that's mandatory or not, they should have a board of directors, people that they can go to that will be mentors that
1: can connect them with the community and open doors otherwise they wouldn't have. So one of the things that that you've done, and Chad Chad and I were speaking earlier in regards to this, but kind of landing the plane for the episode here, you've built a phenomenal team around you. As you mentioned, you have board of directors, you have community partners that, there's not a direct affiliation, you just built relationships with over the years. And of course you have your team that you do employ. You've been able to build all of these great resources and these people around you. When you're talking to the, you know, entrepreneur. maybe they're five or 10 years in their journey. What counsel or advice can you give them about how to build a great team of people around you?
0: I, I just think it's, it's incredibly important. It doesn't have to be a bunch of people, but you've got to have, um, one or two folks that are willing to invest back in you. And I don't mean financially. I, I just mean wisdom. Um, I was blessed. Um, uh, that original board, all of them were giving of their time, their talent, and their and their experience. Um, there were a few that I probably shouldn't name that were extraordinary. Um, they would call me at five thirty in the morning because they knew I was up at five thirty in the morning. They'd say, "I've wrestled with this all night. You know, uh, we were thinking about bringing the truck dock in, bringing trucks in this way, but what if we?" Changed it. What if we brought it in this way uh, of a new building? Um, that went on and on and on and on. I mean, it was every day, all day. And so, um, if you can be fortunate enough to find one or two or five or ten of those people, uh, it it is the greatest thing that could ever happen. Um, and then, look, I think the other big part is continuously gain education. You know, that IAVM thing that I mentioned uh, is our international association and they offer a ton of continued education programs. That's important for the leader, but it's even more important that the leader encourages their staff to go get further education. I can't tell you how many times I've sent people away and they come back, and they teach me something brand new that I needed to know. Um, so that mentorship doesn't have to be uh, an old guy. Uh, you, you might learn it from the youngest person on your, on your team, if only you'll uh,
2: reach out. Cannot thank you enough for joining us today, sharing so much with us, so much value, and, and just – humbling to be in your presence paul you have so much experience and so much uh knowledge and, and being willing to share it with our audience and with us uh thank you so much thanks for being on the podcast uh, i'm excited to, to do this again is truly an honor
0: i i just i can't thank you enough for just inviting me um it's been a blast uh and if i can ever help in any way let me know thank you
2: If you're a fan of the Entrepreneur Adventure podcast, we would love to hear about it. You can leave us a review right here on your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe to the podcast or you can find us on Instagram at The Entrepreneur Adventure. Until next time, thank you for joining us.